0: But first, here's another one that a lot of people are curious about, and I've got a lot of listener emails and calls on this one. BC casinos, they have been shut down for more than a year. When will they open up again? How will they operate? Have a listen to this. This is Premier John Horgan speaking earlier this week at the reopening news conference here. Have a listen.
1: Now As we go to turning the fight towards COVID-19, it'll mean that nightclubs can reopen, Casinos will reopen and there will be new public health guidance around masks and physical distancing. Again, Dr. Henry will lay that out as the data provides over the next number of weeks.
0: Okay, John Horgan there speaking earlier this week as BC gets set to reopen and get back to some normalcy here. You heard him talk about nightclubs and casinos in British Columbia getting set to reopen again. Okay, let's discuss that now with my guest, Lara Garrett. Lara is the Senior Manager for Communications and Government Relations at the BC Lottery Corporation. Hi, Lara. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Thanks very much for coming on today. When did casinos um, shut down?
2: Uh, Casinos uh, first shut down back in in March of 2020, so about 14 months ago. So uh, like you were saying, we're so excited to kind of get back to normal and to be able to reopen our facilities as early as july 1st uh, fingers crossed so that we can start bringing people back together for for gambling entertainment in in a safe and fun way
0: right man that's a long shutdown boy since march you've been shut down for over a year here and uh what has been the impact of that on uh, on the casino operations in bc lottery corporation did you guys have to lay off a lot of staff
2: so here in bc we partner with private sector casino operators that operate casinos and community gaming centers on our behalf and you know, it's been a really challenging time for our industry overall. There's 10,000 uh, people from across British Columbia who are directly employed by the casino industry. So, you know, they're very excited to get back to work. There's so much joy uh, in the conversations this week uh, as we start to pull together our plans to reopen as July, as early as July 1st.
0: Right. We're hearing about some other sectors as they start to ramp up again, like notably the hotel business, for example, with a lot of people who are laid off or you know, told, we don't know when you'll be coming back to work, and then suddenly uh, they've got to recall a lot of people back to work. I-, I wonder if the casinos could be in a bit of a jam in, uh, in hiring staff and getting people to come back. Maybe a lot of people have moved on to other jobs. Have you heard anything on that?
2: Well well here's the good news is that yeah. we've been working with our service providers behind the scenes for the past year to to prepare to reopen our facility, uh, facilities as soon as the provincial health officer says we can. Right. Those facilities are really ready to reopen. So the, the um, work now is to bring back those 10,000 employees to get them trained up on our new health and safety measures uh, so that we can open uh, as early as July 1st. So we're confident that we'll be able to reopen safely and efficiently as soon right. as the provincial health officer gives us the green light.
0: All right. B.C. Casino is, of course, a big revenue generator for, for government. That's a lot of money that's been put on hold. How much revenue is typically generated by the casino business in B.C.? Well, uh,
2: I, ca- I can't tell you about last year because uh, there was yeah. no revenue generated. <laughs> yeah. But in uh, twenty eighteen twenty nineteen, uh, BCLC delivered one point four billion overall to the province of BC, and wow. that goes towards lots of good things like healthcare, education, community programs, um, and of, of that, about nine hundred and twenty nine million was generated by casinos and community gaming centers. So. It's a huge source of revenue for the province. The money's going back to good things, and that's a big part of why we're so excited to reopen, not only to provide that entertainment for our players, but to yeah. get that money flowing back to support so many good things across our province.
0: Okay, speaking to Lara Garretts, Lara from the uh, BC Lottery Corporation, uh, manager of government relations there. Let's talk about how this reopening is, is going to happen, Lara. So you mentioned that July, July 1st is the target date, correct?
2: It's as early as July 1st. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what the provincial health officer announced earlier this week. So, of course, we need to see those COVID numbers uh, keep going down. We need to see those vaccination rates keep going up. Um, But we're eager um, and we're ready to rock as soon as we get that green light to reopen.
0: Right. How many casinos are there in the province?
2: There's 38 facilities across the province, um, and they're operated by about 14 different uh, service providers.
0: Right, right. Okay, so July 1st, starting to reopen again, you hope. Will If people are visiting a casino at that time, will they see new safety measures in place there?
2: Absolutely. I think that, you know, casinos are going to look a little bit different um, from when our players visited them pre-pandemic, of course. So things like table games, slot machines and other gambling equipment, they're going to be spaced out to support physical distancing wherever possible, There's going to be new uh, physical barriers. These are already in place and ready to go um, where physical distancing is a bit more challenging, perhaps where a dealer is interacting with a player or at the cash cage, for example. And then another big change is that the occupancy is going to be limited when we first reopen. So there's only going to be as many players allowed in as there are active gaming seats so there's not going to be kind of people congregating around um, like you may have seen pre-pandemic. Um, but, you know, as we slowly reopen and take a careful, considerate approach, we'll get back to normal. And, and we're excited to be reopening um, as soon as we can at this point.
0: Okay. So with the occupancy limits there, so what, you'd be counting the number of people going in and limiting the number of people in each facility? Is that is that how it's going to work?
2: It's going to really depend on each individual facility, on the layout, on the size of the facility. Um, As I mentioned, everything's going to be spaced out, so there's going to be less gaming seats on the gaming floor, but there will only be allowed as many players in as there are those seats on the gaming floor. So lots of space, lots of protective barriers, the safety of our players, and, of course, our people is always our number one priority.
0: Right, and you mentioned, like, you know, what people go into a casino... uh, they're familiar with seeing those slot machines lined up like right next to each other sort of long banks of of slot machines and people sitting beside each other has Mm -hmm. have you guys been forced to kind of move out a lot of a lot of slot machines off the floor in order to in order to space them out
2: not to not to necessarily move them up off the floor uh, but to remove chairs and um, you know make them not accessible to players so moving slot machines is quite a feat um yeah. but they you know every second slot machine for example um, may be available to players again to support that physical distancing and to make sure that everybody is playing in the safest way possible
0: okay what about like uh card games like if people are playing poker or whatever and, and players may be touching cards that other players had touched or you know the dice at the craps table how do you how do you deal with that
2: well, what we're thinking at this point, and, and I have to say that we still need to work you know, quite closely with the provincial health officer and WorkSafeBC on, on our measures because things are changing uh, quite quickly. Um, but at this point, what we're thinking is that the availability of some of those cards games may be a bit different and um, that players won't be able to touch the playing cards. They'll probably be oh. dealt face up and handled exclusively by a dealer who's dealing from behind a plexiglass barrier, for example.
0: Wow. Wow. How do you play poker without touching your cards?
2: (laughs) I wondered if you were a poker player. Um, (laughs) Poker, traditional poker, may not be offered when we uh, first reopen, but there are some poker variant games that may be offered um, where players still aren't allowed to touch the cards. The dealer deals face up organizes the cards from the highest lowest value for players um and we're thinking that that's one way that we could continue to offer live poker in some facilities where there is the demand for that so more to come on that for sure
0: okay lara last question for you with the casino shut down in bc for over a year has there been any concern at bc lotteries that you may lose players like i wonder if some people have gone to online gambling i mean there are lots of opportunities for people to gamble online some of it's illegal as far as I know, but uh, do you think there's, has there been any fear of loss of players or revenue there?
2: You know what? This actually has been a really uh, great success story for BCLC over the past 14 months. in that we do have an online um, uh, gambling website called playnow.com. And it was already the fastest growing channel of our business, but you know, over the past 14 months, it's more than doubled in its popularity. I think we saw an 84% increase in new players so despite the closure of casinos, some of those players have moved to play casino games online. And that's enabled us, along with our lottery sales, of course, to continue generating that revenue to the province and to continue providing that entertainment and that gambling entertainment to our players in an online forum during this time.
0: Okay, we're watching closely how this all rolls out. Lara, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. You- All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the return of weddings to British Columbia now. How many weddings were canceled over the last year in B.C., I wonder. It's got to be a lot. So frustrating and stressful for people who've been planning a big wedding, only to be forced to tell their family and friends it's all off. The pandemic has forced the cancellation or postponement of the wedding because of the restrictions. But now, finally, some hope on the horizon with weddings allowed again, including Outdoor weddings first, and then indoor weddings set to begin again soon. It was all part of BC's reopening plan uh, that was announced this week. Have a listen to Premier John Horgan here.
1: As vaccination coverage continues to go up, we'll be able to have uh, outdoor weddings of up to 50 people. Graduation ceremonies may be possible for those graduating later in the summer. And as more people realize their first and second doses, we'll be able to look at moving to steps three and step four.
0: Okay, Premier John Horgan there mentioning weddings at the reopening plan earlier this week. Let's discuss now with my guest, Emma McCormick. Emma is the owner of The Good Party. She is a wedding and event planner in Victoria. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Emma. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. I imagine that you and your business and the people who work for you have gone through some tough times here, to say the least, over the the past year. What's what's it been like to be an event planner and a wedding planner uh, during this down period here over the last year?
3: (laughs) Well, that's a great question. We have basically just referred to ourselves as professional postponers since (laughs) March of 2020. um that's really what we've done we've just moved weddings and events moved them and moved them and moved them we've had clients from 2020 who've ended up in 2022 and now we're back in 2021 We have 2021 clients who never ever thought they'd be considering having to postpone who have moved so it's just been a lot of moving things around of juggling different balls and trying to adapt as the public health orders um, continue to change based on what the restrictions look like But the restart definitely gives us hope.
0: Have you been able to do any sort of, I don't know, micro weddings over the last year? Were those allowed, like really, really small events?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. it was uh, a bit of a learning curve, but we got there eventually. So sort of starting last May, um, we were able to have a lot of elopements and micro weddings. So typically that looks like groups under 10 or 12. Um, depending on what the public health order was at the time. And then last summer, there was that brief period kind of for about three months from early July through October when we were able to have up to 50 people again. So we had a handful of clients who went ahead last summer with like true pandemic weddings. Um, which definitely looks different than regular weddings, but was a really good way for them to get married if that was what was important to them. They just wanted to tie the knot instead of necessarily having like the big, huge party with hundreds of people.
0: Man, you must have been dealing with some clients who were stressed out, to say the least. I mean, that's pretty tough to be planning a wedding and then you've got to call the whole thing off and tell everyone, you know, it's it's been postponed. I guess you you probably heard some pretty... I don't know, you probably had some pretty upset clients, I imagine.
3: Yeah, the emotions have definitely run high for everyone this year. And not just for the couple, for the family as well. Like, so many here on Vancouver Island, we're a huge destination for weddings. More than 50% of our clients actually aren't even based on the island. So they're coming from Vancouver, they're coming from Alberta, they're coming from Toronto, and lots are coming internationally to BC as well. Like, it's a huge wedding destination for people who want that, like West Coast Wedding. And so the travel restrictions and the border closures have also made for a lot of heartache for people who just can't get here or for families who are separated. So we had weddings go ahead last year where like the entirety of the groom's family was in Europe. Um, so we had Zoom weddings and oh. all sorts of different things, drive-in weddings. It looked very oh. different, but the couples who wanted to get married, they really did make it work last
0: year. Oh, man, what a crazy time it's been. Well, now we've got some hope on the horizon here, as you mentioned. So what was your reaction this week, Emma, when you heard the news that weddings could be back on here as we reopen?
3: Oh, (laughs) Mike, it was so exciting. We have been waiting for this. like, We really, really have been. Um, Our team was just listening to the announcements and really, really hoping that we would see that 50-person gathering number return. So that was huge for us, but now the immediate kind of consequences of the announcement of the restart plan is what exactly does that look like in practice and how exactly does the public health order read um, so we can understand what is possible for our clients and our clients who are supposedly getting married in the next few weeks and then also our clients who are getting married starting in July and into September. So how will those weddings look different from maybe what we were initially planning for?
0: Right. And what's your understanding of what's allowed now and what will be allowed in the future? Because we're hearing that you could have an outdoor wedding right now with up to 50 people. Is that correct?
3: So it's, I think the best way to answer this question is it is complicated. So (laughs) the restart program um, was announced obviously on Tuesday afternoon um, the public health order was actually made public to us. The events and gatherings one last night around 5 p.m. on the government's website. And the wording um, is a little bit contradictory in places. And there is differences from what we're reading on the BC CDC website versus what's on the government's website. Um, oh. So, right, yeah, it's just unpacking it is a bit of a nightmare. Um, but we're starting to get there, and the best resources are actually through the health authorities. So we have some great contacts at Vancouver Island Health Authority, and I'm sure it's the same for the planners and vendors in um, the Lower Mainland and across BC, but they're a really good resource to go to. So right now, as we understand it, we can have 50 people outdoor for ceremonies. Whether you can have a seated door reception, which would be food and drink service, is a little bit up in the air um, on one website it reads absolutely no socializing before during or after and that would include receptions. so it really would just be a ceremony only um, but on the public health order which was released last night it does read that we could have food and beverage service but no dancing so as things start to progress, I think we're going to see um, some changes to some of the wording on the website so we can get a clearer picture of what clients can actually do in the coming weeks and months.
0: Oh, man, that's tough. Boy, that's uh, tough to run <laughs> Tough to run a business when the rules are, are not clear, but I'm sure they'll be made clear here in, in, in the days ahead. What about um, like an indoor wedding? What's your understanding of when that will be allowed?
3: So indoor weddings, um are under 10 people right now, and that includes the officiant and it includes the couple, but that doesn't include additional um, event staff. So we have been able to do sort of similar elopements under those rules um, for those past few months. Um, There's a fine line on the website, on all of the websites and communication between what is an organized event or gathering and what is a personal gathering. And sometimes there's um, misconception and confusion confusion there but weddings are for sure organized gatherings and that's being made clear um, across the board on the government's website
0: right so could you have an indoor wedding later this year like starting in june or or july maybe or what is that not clear yeah
3: it is it's starting to become more clear so we're it's looking like by mid-june we'll be able to have an indoor wedding Uh, with up to 50 people at least a ceremony with everyone seated what that looks like for a reception and food and beverage service remains uncertain at this point so with our couples and clients in particular who are planning for this summer um we're really keeping them kind of like holding them at bay a little right now while we really work through what's going to be possible Um, because it will also depend on the venues they're at. It's going to look different on people's private property and backyard weddings than it will look at a hall or a traditional wedding venue.
0: Okay, man, oh, man. Also, that's a complex puzzle you're putting together there, Emma. Okay, speaking to Emma McCormick from The Good Party, she is a wedding and event planner in Victoria. So uh, is your phone uh, like ringing off the proverbial hook here as people phone you up and say if they think like, wow, I can have a big wedding this summer maybe? Yeah,
3: definitely. So for our existing weddings, we probably have about 60 that are still holding on for this summer. What that looks like as far as if they'll have 10 people or if they can have 100 people does remain unclear. So we've definitely been in touch with all of our clients. We've heard from them. Um, And then separately, we've had a lot of phone calls from people who are really ready to start celebrating the things that were missed last year. So for some of them, these are people who didn't have planners before and now want to bring us on board and are looking for assistance but we saw an inquiry come in this morning for a housewarming party they moved into their dream house um during 2020 and now they're ready to have a party and really celebrate that
0: all right welcome back as we continue talking about the return of weddings to british columbia my guest is emma mccormick she's the owner of the good party in victoria she's a wedding and event planner things getting busier for emma these days with the reopening plan announced this week phone lines are open phone me and tell me your stories on this one have you had a wedding uh, postponed or delayed because of the pandemic i'd love to hear from you 604-280-9898 is the number star 9898 toll free and yourself phil on the line in nanaimo hey phil
4: Hey guys, Um, yeah, COVID, you know, isn't isn't exactly a bad thing because it's postponed our wedding a couple times. Um, I'm I'm actually was supposed to get married June 2020, and uh, we postponed it um, till this year, July, and then uh, actually August, and we weren't too sure what was going to happen. With uh, with everything, how many people and all that, so we we decided just to postpone until next August 2022.
0: So yeah, boy, that's uh what a that's what a drag. You
4: know? everybody's been really cool. Like our our uh, venue, uh, all our, our vendors have have been really cool. They've they've kept their deposits. They've let us rebook three, two times. So. You know, everyone's you know everyone's been pretty cool with it, so we're we're happy with that. And it's and we want we want a good wedding. We want uh, everybody to be there with not having to wear masks, not no restrictions. You know, it's right. our first wedding each, so it's it's got to be the way we want it. So okay,
0: Phil, congratulations. So. Thanks a lot for sharing that story. I hope things go well for you next year. That was interesting what he said there, Emma. That they want to have a wedding with no one being required to wear wear masks at the wedding. So he he wants to delay until until next year are you hearing anything like that from any of your clients
3: oh absolutely like yeah. people want to party and a true true party with like no masks no restrictions hugs everywhere like yeah. packed dance floor you know like that's that's what a lot of people want and have always dreamed of for their wedding and so right. for couples who really are looking for that it's looking like september or later is when they should be planning for. A lot of our 2020 and 2021 couples have postponed to 2022. 2022 is going to be jam-packed for wedding vendors across D.C.
0: Yeah, I bet. Holy smokes. And you heard him say there that he's been fortunate that a lot of the people he was working with uh, you know, are, are keeping their reservations open. He hasn't lost any of his deposits. Have you heard any stories like that with people who've lost deposits on halls or anything like that?
3: Yeah, it's been, there's been lots of ups and downs for people as they, as yeah. they've navigated through this. But for the most part, we've seen vendors be really flexible with moving, um, clients, contracts, deposits, payments, everything kind of being moved through. And just like yeah. Phil was saying, like we've had clients who have moved forward two, three, four times, um, yeah. as they bumped forward, like six months here, three months there, six months again. And all of the vendors that we've been working with have been fantastic to deal with. And sometimes it means a small change fee to like 2022 pricing. But for the most part, people have been able to honor contracts.
0: Okay, star 9898 is the number to call me on your cell. Steve on the line in Campbell River. Hey, Steve.
5: Hey, Mike. We were supposed to get married uh, August 2020, and we postponed it until 2022 for a couple of reasons number one i work in the casino so i haven't been working for over a year
1: which (laughs) makes it
5: terrible uh and then the other piece is we've got a lot of family traveling from across the country so a the travel restrictions and b financially for everyone uh it's been a tough year so we don't want to be like hey you know head out to bc for a wedding and put more strain on people that are already stressed out
0: yeah no good point thank you steve for that for sharing that and are you hearing similar stories to that emma Yeah,
3: definitely. Like people are traveling from all over. And because we don't have a clear sense of what what and when international travel will open up, a lot of people who have that as a priority and aren't into having a Zoom wedding or broadcasting things on the internet, they're going to wait it out until the borders open up again.
0: Okay, what okay, the yeah, the border restrictions is that boy that's another wild card here, especially when you're you're planning a big event and there's a lot of moving pieces here. I guess you're looking you would like to see a little bit more clarity it sounds like from from government and health authorities on exactly what you'll be able to what kind of party you'll be able to throw this summer, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. Right. Like the way that the restart plan um reads is that things can start as early as June fifteenth, as early as July first, and as early as September seventh, which is great, but it means that there's going to be some fluidity and movement there, um, and so that's really hard to deal with when you're planning a wedding. A lot of clients are being really flexible, but for clients who are feeling stressed out and the anxiety of what's going to be possible in September versus what's going to be possible mm-hmm. in July is too much for them. Those are the ones who we're recommending we just bump things to 2022.
0: Okay, Emma, I'm glad uh, you get some light at the end of the tunnel here. What's your website if people want to check it out?
3: Uh, they can find us at thegoodparty.ca or on Instagram at thegoodparty.
0: Okay, cool. Thanks a lot for coming on today.
3: Thanks for having me, Mike. Take care.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the fight for high-rise social housing in Vancouver now. Housing activists want more affordable housing options. What about 12-story social housing? Supporters of that option suffered a setback this week. When Vancouver City Council voted down a proposal to approve 12 story housing projects without a rezoning application. The battle over this not over though. Housing advocates continue to press for more affordable housing in the city of Vancouver. Let's discuss now with my guest. We had a great panel assembled for you now to talk about this. On the line is uh, Tom Armstrong. Tom is the CEO of the BC Co-op Housing Federation. Pleased to welcome him to the show. Hi, Tom.
5: Hello,
1: pleased to be here.
0: Thanks a lot for doing this. Also in the line is Bill Thielman, president of West Star Communications. Hey Bill. Hey Mike, thanks. Thanks guys for both of you being here. Tom, let me go to you first. I know you spoke out in favor of this motion that I'm sure you're disappointed to see it get voted down at City Council. Can you briefly explain explain why you why you supported this idea and what it would what you hoped it would achieve?
5: I, I can. I, and, yeah. and you're right. We are disappointed in, in the outcome, but um, we're happy that the issue got raised and we're certainly far from, from giving up on the idea. Um, we all agree that we need more affordable housing uh, all over Vancouver. And it struck us that this was a logical extension of an earlier motion that was approved by council to move forward with redeveloping existing properties uh, without requiring the uh, rezoning uh, process that adds time, expense, and and, uh, delays to to the project.
0: Okay, and Bill, I know that you were opposed to the idea. Can you explain if this had gone through, why you were concerned about it?
1: Sure, Mike. I, I called this motion really an affront to democracy because it's removing, it would have removed, the right of citizens of Vancouver to say, uh, there's a proposal here. It's going to be 12 stories next to my house or in my neighborhood. It doesn't fit in at all with any of the existing housing situations. It's inconvenient to and and uh, uncomfortable situation. Um, but as it stands now, they can still go ahead with that. But they have to go to city council. They have to do public consultations. There has to be right. recorded vote. That took all this away and just leaves it to city staff to decide. So you wake up one morning and you find out there's a 12-story building going up next to yours or across the street from your house. And that's just not democratic. It's not right. And so, so I'm really pleased that the vast majority of agreed with that. And, a- and I, it's not a knock on co-op housing. I support co-op housing. I've lived in co-op housing. But it has to, you know, everything needs to fit in so that everybody can get along properly
0: so it gets down to like a, a nimby argument then right like no not i don't think i think it,
1: I, I think it's a democratic argument and I, I also you know if you put social housing and have it stick out like a sore thumb in a the neighborhood there's going to be a stigma with that as well like social housing exists i live next to a co-op right now it's perfectly fine it's just not 12 stories
0: okay tom Armstrong, what do you say about that
1: well, you
5: know, I've heard the democracy argument. I think, frankly, it's a bit of a smokescreen. I, I went back and checked. I couldn't find a definition of democracy that gives you the right to decide who lives next door to you. Um, this is, uh, you know, we have councillors. They're elected on a four-year cycle. Uh, they run on platforms that lay out uh, their housing policies, and then they, they implement them over the time that they're they're sitting around that council table. And the the real issue here is, you know, what are the barriers and the obstacles to getting more affordable housing into all of the communities in, in Vancouver? You know, I I had my ear to the window uh, when the council was debating this and listening to uh, you know, more than 120 speakers. I didn't hear the sound of 100 bulldozers uh, revving up to, you know, plow Kitsilano under. Um, you know, I think that that was a, a, a very uh, democratic process. Taking uh, to a public hearing the notion of just having a conversation. Like, let's ask staff to do the diligence, bring back a recommendation to council that we can then debate in full at another public hearing. If that's not democracy in action, frankly, I don't know what is. Okay, well, let's
0: listen to... Hang on a sec, Bill, just before you respond to that. I want to play uh, a short montage here of some of the speakers on this because this was certainly a a hotly debated idea to allow 12-story social housing projects to go ahead without a rezoning application. Uh, There were passionate speakers on both sides of this at City Council. Let's have a listen to what that sounded like.
3: This motion bypasses the democratic process, and I know firsthand it has real consequences to families.
1: The types of buildings proposed will not just benefit the tenants who live in them, but also benefit every other tenant in the city by giving them more options and ensuring that they face less competition for existing housing.
4: I certainly would not expect to uh, pass any of my classes. At uh, 30% of uh, what was asked for me. Uh, and uh, certainly I wouldn't expect to get a degree if I uh, fulfilled 30% of the requirements. Getting social housing into every neighborhood in the city instead of loading up select few neighborhoods. The downtown east side model is an absolute failure, so we need to do something different.
6: It basically circumvents
4: any real opportunity for neighborhood input. Over and over again, the artists I know who are able to stay are those who are lucky or connected enough to snag one of those rare coveted spots in a co-op built in the 1980s. Co-ops and nonprofit housing are the last decent shot artists in the city have of not being forced out.
0: Okay, just a little sample there of some of the debates and the speakers at this motion at City Council is hotly contested here on fast-tracking uh, social housing, high-rise social housing. So, Bill Tillman, let me go back to you, like, I believe there was a project in your neighbourhood that was proposed, right, in, in Kitsilano? There's, is that- there's,
1: there is a 12-storey proposal at Arbutus and 8th right now, which is not far from me. But what this proposal would have done is uh, in about 60, over 60 sites across the city, in Kitsilano, Fairview, Mount Pleasant, Granby Woodland, uh, it would have allowed uh, those buildings potentially to be up to 12 storeys without a public hearing. And Tom is being a bit disingenuous. He talked about staff coming back to council. If that motion, that one motion with one hearing passed then staff would be deciding the heights and the density, over height, over density, for most of, uh, most of Vancouver, really, after that. And that's, that's not how it works now. I, I don't see why it's a problem if you have a good proposal and you think it's, it, it fits with the community, That why there'd be a problem going to council, letting people say yay or nay, and then council voting. Uh, that's the way we've done it. And I'm sorry, you know, like, I wish there was more money for co-op housing and other social housing, but to, to say, well, we have to have 12 stories because government won't give us enough money is not a good reason.
0: Tom Armstrong, what do you say?
5: Well, I think Bill's reading a different report than than uh, than I saw. and We're not saying that every building has to be 12 stories. We're saying that sometimes the economics of, of a new housing development or redevelopment uh, require you to build additional density on a site so that it can be affordable on day one for people to move in. I mean, if you, you listen to that speaker who talked about those rare coveted units uh, in co-ops, well, the, the reason they're rare and, and coveted is because people have been finding excuses not to build more affordable housing in the city of Vancouver for years and and it's it's not good enough to say i don't like this proposal i don't like that proposal unless you're coming forward with another idea to cure what is a crisis in supply and affordability in the city so this was an idea that we thought had merit uh it was going to be taken uh, back to staff to bring back to council uh to have a discussion about how we increase the number of affordable homes in a city where, where the majority, uh, more than half of the people living in this city are, are, are renters, and those options need to be expanded for everyone. Uh, do you it's think... not good enough for the comfortably housed to say, um, we're going to keep uh, the status quo so that, so that the same number of people uh, stay in, in the crisis situation they're in.
0: Okay, Tom Armstrong, do you think that, you heard Bill Thielman say this is not a NIMBY thing. This is about local democracy, and people should have a, a, a say if a high-rise building is going to be built next to them. Every Everyone will say they believe in we need more affordable housing, we believe in social housing, that's all good. But do you think it really does get down to a NIMBY thing? Like, at the end of the day, there's there's local opposition when you want to put a housing project into someone's neighborhood, and the people who are already there don't want it.
5: Well, I think if you listen to the speakers, and you know, this is another... Um, you know, that the, the, the complaint that this is an undemocratic process, I think ignores the fact that 120 people got a chance to have their say in front of council. The majority of people who spoke against the motion began their remarks by saying, "I support uh, social housing," or "I support affordable housing." Well, right. Um, then, then why aren't we talking about a way to build more of it and, and instead of a way to stop? Uh, new ideas that come forward to add to the stock of affordable housing. I believe you to draw your own conclusion on that.
0: Bill Tillman, what do you
1: say to that? Well, I, I want to read the motion that Councillor Christine Boyle uh, re, uh, put before council was voted down. It says uh, options uh, t- for uh, to enable more social housing projects to proceed without a rezoning, without a rezoning. And that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about so one vote to allow infinite number of uh, social housing projects up to 12 stories. That is not, in my view, local democracy. It's not good civic engagement. It's not the way you have a consultative process with citizens who who are taxpayers and pay the bills. And so, you know, it's fine to say we all want more social housing, but there aren't, uh, I mean, I don't think Tom can point to project after project that's been rejected by city council uh, prior to this that was 6, 8, 10, 12 stories that fit in the neighborhood. I don't think there's been that many proposals. This is a, an attempt to slip it all by. They passed a motion in April for, uh, to bump it up to six stories, even though in Kitsilano and Fairview and other parts of Vancouver, the limit for height and density is four stories. They fired that one through and they thought, well, let's go, we got six, let's go for 12. And, that, and unfortunately, it was stopped in his tracks. But it's, okay. it's, it's, if it comes back, it's going to be a problem. All
0: right. Welcome back as we continue talking about the fight for high-rise social housing in Vancouver with my guests, Bill Thielman, Tom Armstrong. Your calls to them. There are lots of them. So let's get right to them. Steve in Victoria. Hey, Steve.
4: Hey. Uh, I lived in a co-op for a period of time out here in Victoria. And, you know... The, the older sites, they, they're spread out. They're usually townhouses and stuff. And it's time to like, revitalize them. And why not build them up? Go up, uh, raise the, um, the floor height, like move it up to 12 stories. I mean, there's so many people who want to move to greater Vancouver and greater Victoria and stuff. We need to densify. We can't stick with these single housing options anymore.
0: Okay, thanks for the call. Well, uh, Tom, I'm sure you would agree with him. What is the status of building co-op housing? Like the co-op housing that does exist right now, as you mentioned, is kind of precious housing. A lot of people would love to live in a co-op housing unit. There's not a lot of them being built anymore. Like when was the last one built, co-op?
5: Well, we're, we're actually just at the, uh, we're on the cusp of a new building boom in co-ops. The, the province has come to the table with an unprecedented investment in, in new homes. But the caller is, is right. The bulk of co-ops were built under federal programs in the 80s and early 90s. And a lot of those buildings are coming to the end of their, their useful life cycle. They're, they're not uh, densified according to, you know, current zoning And they need to be redeveloped. Um, But, uh, you know, you run into the economics of development. You can't redevelop a co-op at the density that exists now. And and there's a housing crisis. Uh, So you put the two of those uh, factors together, and you have to do exactly what the caller was suggesting.
0: Okay, Bill, so what's wrong with that?
1: Well, there's lots of problems with it. We have zoning for reasons, and it's so that everybody can live together comfortably in their city and, and, and go along with that. If you want to remove the housing, uh, the zoning restrictions for co-op housing and social housing, then why not just remove them all and say it's a free-for-all? And the reason we don't do that is you get urban sprawl, you get uh, disastrous Uh, Design, you get all sorts of problems, and and that's one of the things that that some of the bylaws and zoning laws in Victoria and Vancouver were designed to to avoid in the first place. And so, we you know, I don't want to. For example, I live on West Broadway. I don't want to live in a canyon of. 12-story buildings or 20-story or buildings or 30-story buildings. Uh, I don't want to live in New York or, or Tokyo kind of style uh, place. And so I think that, you know, I feel sorry for Tonka and the co-op movement because it is hard to find the funding on the one hand. On the other hand, if you want to see a real backlash against social housing, start building over-height, over-density buildings all over the place, and people will really react poorly to it. It, it should fit in with the community that exists now.
4: Okay. Well, we don't
5: need sympathy. Okay. We we need we need commitment to new homes. I hope Bill's not pretending here that 12 stories is the tipping point for him because he came out a couple of weeks ago and spoke against 6 stories as well.
1: I'm, so I'm- I'm speaking against 36 stories in West End, two uh, two-story two apartment buildings that are being put, knocked down, and thir- two 36-story towers are going to go up if council votes on that one as well. I, I, just, I'm, I don't care if it's social housing or for-profit housing or condos or rental. I don't think that you go and, and basically overdensify and over-height buildings willy-nilly uh, without Democratic input on it from the citizens who actually have to pay the bills and live in the city. So uh-huh. let's
5: just ring fence the city and, and tell people uh, if they don't already have a home uh, in no. Vancouver, they're out of luck. They should just drive east until they can afford
1: something. No, that's, that's, that's not, not, not the, not the, the case you at all. City. That's not the case at all. You, you're hoping to build 12-story apartments all over the city and go against all the existing zoning rules because it's cheaper and easier to do. And I don't agree with you.
5: It's not because it's cheaper and easier, to build, It's because it's viable. Um, we're just redeveloping a co-op now uh, in East Vancouver. We went from four to six stories. Um, took us a year uh, through the rezoning process because it wasn't uh, wasn't initiated in time to benefit from the recent decision of council. Just the process of rezoning to go from four to six stories added almost a million dollars uh, to the development process, which in a non-profit situation travels straight to rents for for low and moderate income members, and that's two wow. to three hundred dollars unit per per month so we're not talking about uh you know the the fantasy housing that some people imagine could be built on on their notion of uh, low density zoning we're talking about what it takes to add affordable homes uh, to communities all over vancouver
0: okay let's squeeze in another phone call here rick calling from
4: port moody go ahead rick Hi, gentlemen. It, it, I really uh, appreciate you taking my call. Thank you very much, Mike. You know what? Uh, for me, I really look at this, and it, it's not a case of uh, of NIMBYism. It's a case of democracy, and you can't have two tiered democracy. It's you know, plain and simple. You um, you, you follow the process, and if, if you change it for one, you change it for all. And if you don't change it, if you can't do that, then you 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 don't change it. I mean, I, I see this as part of that that leftist movement that we see everywhere in, in, in governments going on. And, and this, this frustrates me and annoys me to say that, you know, because of social housing, which regardless of what it is to say that you have the right to sidestep democracy is just annoying and ridiculous. Okay,
0: Rick, thank you for the call. We just have one minute left, Tom, how would you respond to that?
5: Well, again, it comes down to what your notion of democracy is, right? I mean, citizens get to elect their municipal councils every four years uh, those councillors run on platforms that include housing policies, and and then bylaws that are adopted. That that citizens do have the right to come and and, uh, and represent their points of view in in public hearings and. So, okay. you know, I think that it's a, it's a smokescreen and that we should just acknowledge it. as okay. such.
0: Bill, 30 seconds here. Yeah, no, Nobody on
1: this city council in Vancouver, and I suspect in anywhere else in BC, ran on a platform saying, if elected, I will start building 12-story social housing. I will do it in your neighborhood or any other neighborhood I choose. I will not hold public hearings. I will not have okay. rezoning hearings. That's it. I'm going to do it. They would have all been defeated and they would be next time, too.
0: All right. Welcome back to the show. Well, it's probably been a while since you've been able to pull out your cleats and work on your underhand pitching style, but following BC's four-step reopening plan, recreational sports have now been given the green light to safely return. Our show contributor, John Jang, now has more. John.
6: Good morning, Mike. Now, we know, based on our conversation on the show this morning, that casinos are all in with their reopening plans, and you might be saying, I do with all the potential weddings that are happening this summer. But when you're not testing your luck and you're not exchanging vows, what about the rec sports that you haven't had a chance to play in over a year? Chris McNally is a managing partner with Urban Rec, one of Vancouver's largest sports and social clubs. And Chris, you've had a couple of days now to let the reopening plans just sort of sink in. So what is your reaction to the possibility of rec sports indeed coming back here over the next few months?
7: Yeah, it's interesting. We have two primary reactions. One is excitement to be able to get back to playing. And the majority of our leagues at this time of the year are outdoors. So we really do fit into that mix, beach, volleyball, slow pitch, softball, soccer. So we're really confident we can meet the safety requirements. But that's the second part of our reaction is there's a huge responsibility for us to facilitate safe return to play in order for us to be able to continue to operate. And that's obviously what we want for everyone. So I think we're we're challenged right now, not knowing exactly how we can return to play safely, and we're hopeful that we get some guidance on that
6: relatively shortly. I can just hear the excitement in your voice, and I think it's a breath of fresh air. Going into the announcement this week, I had spoken with reps from different industries, different sectors, and there was a bit of pessimism that maybe they shouldn't get their hopes up. but. In speaking with several of those reps since, it was better news than anyone could have anticipated. Now, for you and your team, Chris, I guess it's just a matter of planning and then preparing for uh, opening day.
7: Yeah, I think, I think we've held a ton of optimism for an eventual return to play and didn't anticipate it would be quite as quick, maybe, as they've come with, which is exciting. And the majority of our optimism comes from the fact that our participants haven't quit on us. They continue to register and be refunded and register again as every season goes by. And, and so we're not even actually intimidated by ensuring we meet the standards because every time we've had the opportunity to operate and we've been given the guidelines, we've run league safely, we've had no transmissions in our league, and we've had a very, very positive experience at every opportunity to run all of our operations. And so we've remained optimistic that we could get back I think now, like you say, the responsibility weighs a little heavy, but it's a challenge we're looking forward to. And our staff are so excited. Our participants are emailing us right now. Like, it's just a nonstop flow of participants interested in, okay, let's go. <laughs> when can we start? And we can't wait to be able to tell them. But it's probably, you know, we'll look in the, the realm of May 30th, the week of May 30th. We should be able to have everything in place to get going, and, and we'll be flat.
6: I love hearing that. And that tells you that people were clearly invested in just the possibility of getting back into some rec sports this summer. Registering, putting down a bit of cash, even if there weren't any guarantees at that time that they would actually get to play. So in a sense, this is a reward on their faith and their commitment to you and your team. Uh, you,
7: you know, it's, it's
6: amazing how communication during COVID has been
7: so critical. Communication for the media to be able to steal information. And communication between businesses and their customers and, and for our participants, they've been awesome. We've, we've we've phoned them and emailed them and provided as much information as we could. And they've fed back and tried to keep us up to speed on how they were feeling. And I think we couldn't be more thankful for the support of the community. And we are a community business. There is a need for the the fun and fitness that we provide is such a fundamental part of the mental and physical well-being of our communities and and they gave that to us during the time we were shut down by continuing to stay with us and stick with us and that that meant the world to us so it means we're that much more motivated to get back out and provide for them what they look to us for which is fun and recreation and uh, it's it is exciting to have that on the horizon but Like I say, we've got to do it right. And so we've got a little work to do to make sure that's the case.
6: Well, we can at least look ahead uh, to the near future with a lot more optimism than we might have been able to say even a week ago. And so to our listeners who are interested, uh, maybe looking at this and thinking, you know what, it's time to get out there and get my sports on. I encourage you to check out uh, Chris and his team vancouver.urbanrec.ca He is Chris McNally, a managing partner with Urban Rec. Appreciate you giving us some time here, sir, and uh, best of luck with everything moving forward. And hopefully by the time step four, around drives will be in full go mode and uh, things will be pretty much back to normal
7: exactly john thank you so much for taking the time with us and to chat it through it's just absolutely fantastic to get to have this conversation and hopefully we talk more about one we're having over the course of the summer as well
0: okay that was chris mcnally there from urban rec in conversation with our own john jang and john joins me now okay john what kind of sports can people play with urban rec if they're interested in checking this out
6: Oh, it's quite an extensive list here. So it's basketball, beach volleyball, curling, dodgeball, flag football, floor hockey, indoor soccer, outdoor soccer, indoor volleyball, outdoor volleyball, uh, multi-sports soccer, there's softball, and of course, a little bit of everything else. If they have an arena or a stadium or a field for it, Mike, they will find a way to make it play out.
0: Okay, that's really cool. And it's recreational sports, right? It's not like, compa- or you don't have to try out, like it's it's like a house league type of thing. Anybody can play or?
6: Anyone can play. Uh, you can also encourage your friends. You can register as an individual, or you can register as a team. So, if you already have a group of friends who are motivated, who want to get their cardio on this summer, uh, it's a great way to, first of all, you know, have those bonding moments, but also to get some exercise in.
0: Okay, it's almost bizarre to be talking about this again. Now, it's amazing. <laughs> like, do you play any uh, any rec sports yourself, John?
6: You know, I- I've lived in Vancouver for. About six years now, Mike. And I've always told myself when I moved here, I was going to try and sign up. No, I haven't. And so I, I'd like to get involved because now that I know that dodgeball is a thing, um, oh. even for adults, like I, I really love the idea of playing some dodgeball.
0: Dodgeball. Okay. I don't think I haven't played that since I was a kid. That's still a thing, right. huh? Okay.
6: Well, yeah, and you know, we were chatting with uh, Sarah Hyde, our show producer, Tim French, our technical producer. Both of them have played dodgeball at the rec level, and I oh. haven't. So I feel like uh, maybe it's a team bonding thing. Mike, you and I, we're gonna have to get our entire Mike Smith <laughs> show together for a dodgeball tournament.
0: Okay, that's one to that's one to talk about. Uh, so Urban Rec, that sounds like a pretty a pretty cool, accessible sort of setup there that he's got going there. Is that just for? Like, is it for casual players or just guys who just, people just want to play on the weekends? You got to make a big commitment to get involved in these leagues or?
6: Yeah, usually the scheduling works out so that it's based on uh, what works best for teams. And so if you do have a hectic work schedule, it can be a little tough, but they try and manage it uh, comfortably. And for anyone who hasn't played a lot of sports or is just super casual with their fandom, that's okay. This is not for professionals or anything like that. It's for fun.
0: Okay, it's cool. Something to check out for sure. John, thank you for that. You got it. Thanks, Mike.